From Buffalo, Toronto Public Media and WVFO, this is Buffalo What's Next Producers Picks. Highlights of conversations heard on previous episodes. On this week's program, we'll hear about the origins of the Juneteenth celebration in Buffalo from Judson Price. A lot of people who kind of, not kind of dish Juneteenth and thought it was just a grassroots something. Since they found out they could get such an exposure, mm-hmm. everybody came. Oh, sororities, fraternities, fraternal units, politicians, and everybody. Next, author and mental health counselor Andre Stokes Jr. explores the mental health issues prevalent in men of color. Black men, being around black men, is one of the most healthy things that we can do for each other. I mean, and, and of, of course, with regard to being positive about, about right. you know, about whatever the situation is. And finally, Barbara Cole, the artistic director at Just Buffalo Literary Center, and Sydney Clifton celebrate the literary career of Lucille Clifton. Buffalo is just so clearly such an important foundational grounding throughout so much of her work. And that's part of the reason why we felt it was so important for Buffalo to really recognize Clifton as one of the great writers who has walked these streets. We begin with Juneteenth, a yearly national celebration commemorating the end of slavery in the United States. It got its start here in Buffalo in 1976 by a group of community-minded members of the East Side. One of those members was Judson Price. Thomas O'Neill White had the chance opportunity to sit down and speak to Judson about how the event got off the ground. You're an integral part of the history of Black Buffalo, uh, helping to create the first Juneteenth event in the city's history. What was it like organizing the event, um, which is the first of its kind in Buffalo? Well, the first thing I'd like to mention is that when we were at a bill meeting, the uh, active organization that actually started Juneteenth was at a meeting and the um, director, Bill Gator, said, because it was celebrating the uh, bicentennial, it's 4th of July. So he said, let's see if we can find something that's contiguous of, you know, black freedom. Nobody knew anything. So I asked some of the fellows or someone to go out. They went to the library, UB library, a downtown library or somewhere. And he came back shortly and said, he heard this Jubilee celebration. Then he said, Jubilee, actually it was called Juneteenth. And he said, that's it, okay. And so from that, we started. You mentioned Build and uh, William Gator, yeah. who's got a parkway <laughs> named after him. Can you talk a little bit about uh, William Gator and Bill yeah. Community, for, for those who don't know? Yes, um, William Gator, Bill Gator was the uh, director of the Bill organization, which was a very productive, strong, activist organization in the city of Buffalo. And he was a bus driver, and he just quit in order to work on this project. And he was very ingenious in reference to various techniques of dealing with the uh, various problems, which was dealt with schools, jobs, work and everything. And so what we would do is come up with ideas and work on them. And one of the real good ones I would like to mention is we were having trouble with the banks and the banks because they're the ones that lend the money to the contractors to do jobs that we couldn't get. Mm -hmm. So he said, okay, we'll do, they got a busload of people and went to the bank with people adding 10 cents to their account, borrowing, um, putting in five cents, had about 30 people doing that. Mm-hmm. 
And then the uh, officer of the brink said, oh, wait a minute. And they got together and said, let's talk. That was one of the things they did. And they started talking and we did get some workers and the uh, different department stores that were not there. And with, how did, how did Juneteenth get off the ground? And, and also was it originally held in MLK Park? Has it always been held? No, it was on Jefferson first. Jefferson, and unfortunately, a lot of people always say, let's go back on Jefferson, because it was like we could promenade up and down the street, and you could see everybody, and it worked out fine. But that's when it was very small. We had um, maybe 50, 60 um, concessionaires. But now we have the hundreds, hundreds of concessionaries, food, clothing, artifacts, and everything. But what was interesting, the first, very first Juneteenth, and the only Juneteenth that was rained out was the first one. Oh. Was the first one. And we just stopped. And we didn't have too much invested at that time for our money into the people selling food. So we stopped it and started the next week. Did you previously know about Juneteenth? No, that is what's interesting. We knew nothing about Juneteenth. Like I said, we had someone go out and find what could we celebrate. And so he found that, and then we started celebrating. And I'd like to mention this, too. A lot of people, since we've been celebrating it so long in Buffalo, they think that uh, it started here. And I have a flag over there that my daughter brought in. It's in 1865. It was continuous, except they stopped doing the Depression, they stopped doing the war, didn't have celebrations. But um, we knew nothing about it. So what was the process of getting getting the event off the ground? We're talking 1976? 76, yes. The first thing we did was try to get people for a parade, which always start out with a good event. And then we just said, what do we do? And then, of course, if you're having a festival, you know, you had to have food. So we got people who would uh, be selling food. And then of course, artifacts and different things. And also we had it on Jefferson Avenue. Jefferson Avenue because at that time, there was very, very few businesses. And we did it on Jefferson so that it would increase businesses and so forth or bring them back. And so that's how we started. Just Was Jefferson like the kind, kind of like the heart of Black Buffalo at that yes. time? Yes, somewhat, yes. And, and we saw a picture of you right here yeah. <laughs> making uh, flags and stuff. And that's, where'd you come up with that idea? Well, we were just thinking of what we could do. We just come up with different ideas and I like to do different things. Now, I haven't, can't find one of the pennants. There are pennants. And also it was the design on the first Juneteenth shirts. And I had learned a little bit about um, silkscreen printing when I was taking industrial arts at Buff State. And so that was the one I kind of liked. And so I just said what I could do. And at that time, you had to draw and cut a stencil. Now you can do it on the computer. On the computer. Yeah, just like that. With the acetate, put it on a screen that you put on a um, photograph sensitive material. And then let it sit there a while and take it out, wrench it, and you got your screen. So making those pennants pretty pretty time consuming. <laughs> very time consuming, very difficult. And at that time we had regular paint. Oh. And inks. It was not water. Now they have watercolors when you finish with the screen, just wash it out before. Oh. It was tough. How did how did word spread or how'd you get the word out that, hey, we're doing this Juneteenth, March, or you know, festival. festival on Jefferson. Was it just word of mouth? 
It was word of mouth and also through block clubs and everything. And I think also since Buffalo is not that large, people knew people all over North, South, East, West Buffalo, and the word spread. And it wasn't difficult because people were anxious, really anxious to do something in lieu of 4th of July. Ah, I see. I see. Um, so what was the atmosphere like for the first Juneteenth? Well, you said it, it got rained out oh, originally. Gracious. I mean, glorious because we had all kind of marches down Jefferson and had groups. Then we had a stage. And at that time, those who had some talent, they wanted to be seen. And they would do it for nothing, not like now. And they would come so that with the crowd that we had, they were happy to be able to uh, perform. And it's 1976, so what, what, uh, what kind of music are we talking about? We're talking soul, we're talking funk? All kinds of music. <laughs> all kinds of music. At that time, whatever it was, I danced with all of them. <laughs> um, has the manner in which we collectively celebrate Juneteenth changed um, since you guys first started here in Buffalo? And, and in addition to, to yourself and William Gator, who were the other people who, who started up the festival? Oh, well, actually, the uh, young man who was uh, president for over 20 years was uh, Marcus Brown. Then we had other people who was on the uh, committee or the board that would uh, do the various jobs they would you know, assign to do. My first Juneteenth assignment in 2019, I interviewed Marcus Brown. Yes. And that's who we saw at the flag raising. Right. <laughs> and he was the one I told about, and he started and he became president for over 20 years. And he did with a lot with the parade. What, what have you seen change from the first Juneteenth to, to now, to what it is now? I think the organization, and I didn't do it, but I meant to get a list of maybe 20 different auxiliaries, whatever you want to call it, that we have now. Food, entertainment, culture. Um, we had people with um, doing the uh, chess. We had everything you can think of, kids, kids, organizations and kids' parts. And so it just came out to have about I don't know, 30 different uh, venues. And you've seen You've seen Buffalo change so much throughout your lifetime. How has Buffalo improved, and what things do you think have worsened in the city? Well, that's hard to say. But I think uh, the so-called integration did not work. I was counseling when they first started uh, integrating the schools. And what made it so bad for the students that we had at our schools, they could not go to the so-called feeder schools unless they were up high, at least on grade level. And so we lost our good students. And far as I can see and concern, we did not get any students coming into our schools mm -hmm. other than City Honors, right. Olmstead, and things like that. And many, many of the schools are closed now. So many of them with housing. So we have a lot, 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 lot less people do you consider yourself an educator? Pardon me. And do do you consider <laughs> yeah. yourself an educator? Oh yes. yes. Um. So so <laughs> what what uh is there is there a quick fix solution to this problem? Is there a long term solution to this problem? What do you think? 
I would think the long-term solution is always going to mellow in. Bad solution that we did when we integrated the schools and other things like that and closed schools, it didn't work. We used to walk to school and took 10 minutes to walk to school and I always thought at 9 o'clock we'd get to school, 10 after 9 you finish your bell work and you've done a lot of work. Now the students are on the bus for hours. We've just kind of cleared that up mm -hmm. with the so-called three bell system. And it's unbelievable how we've lost the schools. There was one around the corner. And Which one was that? That was uh, 59. Actually, they moved over to the museum. So it's being called the... Uh, That's right. Museum School Science. Oh, Drew Science School. Yes, yes, yes. yes. yep. Mm -hmm. We have one that moved to the zoo, <laughs> the zoo school. <laughs> Every. In addition to creating the Juneteenth Festival here, you've you've pretty much risked your life for the betterment of the city. Um, can you talk about that? I, I realize yeah, a it's a touchy, touchy subject. Basically, I was a black club president. And that's one thing, even the uh, bill organization started with a host of black clubs starting to help the community. And I just happened to be here, and I've been, you can see I've been here over 60 years. And so we had a black club and that really helped us keep the things in order and I was secretary most of the time for someone who was really working in the uh, area but went so-called you know school that much but very hard worker and good at making contact with the youngsters so that's how we um, operated and what happened as far as the trouble the same fellows who really caused the trouble are fellows he worked with. They were the young fellows we worked with. It just so happened one fellow who wasn't too cool, he wanted to do what he wanted to do, and he did what he <laughs> did. Uh -huh. But I was blessed because I didn't hit my teeth. It went in, and little parts stayed in my chest. And it was about half inch from my so-called OIA order, and everything was fine, hit the floor. And my wife was here, and I got up, and she was about to run anywhere, uh, everywhere, and jaw was split. I headed to the bathroom to look. I never got there. I can't recall, <laughs> and I'm glad that I didn't. But we uh, had a good, good block club, and it just happened these young fellas got into this business from some other people outside the community. And those who did not work with those fellas became all kind of successful people and so forth. Wall Street, prison guards, teachers and everything who worked with the block club and were not in this so-called uh, drug business. But also, I had no trouble with the fellas because actually some of the fellas I taught their grandfathers. <laughs> and so it made it easy for me because they wouldn't get after anybody. You talking my grandfather. And just, just like I said, one person who was not too cool. And I think he did it, killed several other people. Mm. In fact, he's in now from 50 to life. Wow. Wow. But the other fellas and most of the people on the street, great, no trouble at all. Every time I, I talk to someone who's a member of the Block Club, I always want to, uh, I ask them to like stress the importance of block clubs, especially in this community. Oh, the importance is just unbelievable because 
We used to keep this street clean. We used to um, sweep the street. We had meetings. We had um, dollar uh, for dues. We get to write proposals in order to get money from the city to have uh, monies to do certain things. And of course, being in school, I was uh, writing a lot, a lot of those, and that did. I like, took pictures and sent with it, and it worked out very well. But they were very important. The black clubs very important in getting the people to know each other because now don't know the people on either side, just one side across the street here. Don't know anybody. And those who were here at the time we moved, there's only a couple families that's still here. All the others have gone or passed on and so forth. But it's it's hard to say. No, it's not hard to say. It's very important, the block loads, very, very important. Coming up next on Producers Picks, in observance of Men's Mental Health Month, which takes place in June, our own Charles Gilbert had a deeply personal and important conversation with best self mental health counselor and author, Andre Stokes Jr. They delve into the mental challenges that men, and mainly men of color, face in today's world. I want to dive into like the, the, the trauma that men mm -hmm. suffer that we don't talk about. Okay. Yep. Because that's, that's a thing that is always stigma or a stereotype that we aren't allowed to showcase or show our feelings. Right. Um, how do you feel about that? Uh, so that had fluctuated throughout, throughout my personal development. Um, I can, I can say within my, let's say teenage years, within my, my mid to late or yeah, mid to late twenties, I, I definitely felt that was the way it was supposed to be. Um, as men, we're supposed to always be resilient in, in any situation and in part being being resilient in, in, in any situation incorporates never complaining and that being resilient in any situation incorporates uh, keeping it to yourself and keeping it within, you know, within your spirit and not kind of, uh, for lack of better words, contaminating the area with with your needs. Right. Mm -hmm. Because as men, we are we are protectors, we're providers. Um, we provide guidance to our to our families, our children, and and so forth. So in my mind at the time, I thought that was how the structure of that was supposed to be, until uh, I realized that my the situations and the challenges that I was going through in my twenties were not improving, and it took me a while to realize that. So upon realization of that, I realized that I needed to go the other route because the the method that I was doing just wasn't working. There and was, what method was that? Silence. Mm. That method was silence. Um, silence is 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 a it's a killer. It is. It's, it's literally a killer. So you know, going that going that route, I always thought that was the right thing to do until I realized it wasn't because my problems were getting worse. Uh, those problems included um, financial vulnerability uh, as a new father. Those problems included uh, relationship tr um, struggles as a new father and so forth. Um, so it got to a point where I finally admitted that maybe. What I'm doing right now with the silence is simply not working. That took me a long time because, again, as men, we have that pride. Mm -hmm. We have that ego, and those things can be counterintuitive to recovery, right? So as I realized I needed to go the opposite direction, I found the benefit in speaking to a counselor at that time. I believe I was 20, 27. I think I was 27. Um, and I found that it was it was starting to help a little bit. And, and just in small doses, because at first, of course, when you switch spectrums, I was a little bit resistant 
to the things that the counselor had to say, and I was resistant to even the idea. Um, but once I kind of let myself go and put my guard down, I saw that my ability to think was a little more clear. It was a little more sharp, and I was able to think more logically versus emotionally. And um, throughout that transition, I found that I was I was incorrect for a large portion of my life um, before that. And um, that kind of opened up a new door into what I wanted to do career-wise and what I wanted to do socially as far as uh, mental health and emotional development. You said a lot right there, and, and I'm you know processing everything that you said now. With you saying you were, like, your, your form of dealing with it was silence. Mm-hmm. Very similar to me. Mm-hmm. You know, I even to this day sometimes tend to when I'm getting angry, when I feel like that I go quiet. Yeah. I don't speak, but through through therapy and also just, you know, my mother, she still to this day gets a little, you know, <laughs> she gets a little upset with me because she'll be able to tell yeah. and then she'll ask me like what's wrong and I won't say nothing. Yeah. And she'll be like, all right, like her thing was just like, she was just like, if something's bothering you, just say you don't want to talk about it right now, mm-hmm. you know? And I'm learning to kind of even in my thirties, yeah. I'm learning like, okay, let me just say, okay, I don't want to talk about it right now. Cause I have to kind of gather my thoughts, right. figure out how can I express it without showing emotion mm-hmm. to a degree. And I say that because we tend to react off of emotion first. Mm-hmm. And I've learned to kind of get the emotion out first. How I do it is I journal. Okay. I journal first. And then after I let everything out, raw emotion, then I'm able to come to the table and say, okay, this is what's going on. Because I've let that emotion get out of me first. And then I come rational. Yeah. As we're both fathers. And you were saying, you know, as far, as men, we are the provider, we are the protector. Mm-hmm. Recently, I was in a conversation with a group of with a group of men, mm-hmm. fathers, and they were talking about how they have to suffer in silence. Yep. You know, similar to what we were just saying. But as fathers, it's it seems like it's more intense. Mm-hmm. You know, because we can't show vulnerability. Society tells us right, we right. can't show that vulnerability. Right. I know that you was kind of speaking about the reasons, you know, why, but dive more into that as far as fatherhood goes mm-hmm. and the suffering that fathers go through. Okay, sure. Um, so that that's a, um, that's an umbrella that has uh, a couple different pathways below it, mm-hmm. and I'm, I'm very glad just that you asked this question. So, with regard to fatherhood, black male fatherhood. We have to think about a few things. We have to think about the relationships that we have with our children, the relationships we have with their mothers, and the relationships that we have with uh, families on both sides. That's a lot to take in just right there. Yes. That's, that's just within those la- within those avenues, that's a whole lot. And then we have to think about the importance of maintaining structure um, the best we can so that our children can be better people than we were, mm-hmm. than we are, right? That's the ultimate goal. Um, and that incorporates its own sets of challenges because while doing that, we still have to um, maintain our our clarity throughout throughout all of those all of those roles. Maintain the clarity while, of course, um, providing financially, which is you know part of the natural role, of course. So 
when when taking on all those sorts of things, we have to think about how our our mental health is impacted while taking care of all those roles. And of, of course, we all know parenting is not easy. Uh, and then there's another there's the other dynamic of people who are single parents as well and who may or may not have the support that they need within the development of their own children. Right. So um, that also opens up the door to the mental health of the child as well. And when we're thinking about the mental health of the child, that coincides with either possibly the lack of mental health, according to the statistics, the lack of mental health that black fathers have, lack of black, black of black mental health treatment that fathers have. So if one person is in need of mental health treatment, there, there that's a significant sign that other people in the household are also in need of that mental health treatment. Because when one person is affected, more uh, one or more are also affected because the dynamic is living within the same home or or maybe even split between homes. So either way, it's a unit. And um, the mental health treatment is never just for one person. Right. When one person can benefit from it in the household, another person can benefit from it. Because when we are a unit, we don't suffer alone, whether we see it or not. Yeah, because I know for me, what motivated me to get into therapy mm -hmm. was seeing my daughter go through it. Right. You know, to see her at a young age going in there and telling, like mm -hmm. talking to her therapist and, and being able to just get there. I sat there and I told myself, if she can do it, why can't I do it? Right. You know, and right. and I applaud her for it. I applaud any young person that can know I need to speak to someone. Right. I want to kind of go back to the si suffering silence because as you okay. were talking, I did, your brother used the metaphor in our class mm -hmm. and it stands out to me. I always use this comparison when you were talking about like just keeping everything in. Right. And he used the metaphor of taking out the trash. Mm. And when you don't take the trash out and you see it and you're just like, I'll take it out another day. And you just keep on delaying, delaying, but you keep piling on. Then eventually when you go to take the garbage out, the bottom just the right. bottom explodes. Right. Right. And that's what happens with a lot of men. We keep things bottled up mm -hmm. and we keep suppressing and and pushing down and just not letting our feelings out. Right. And then eventually we snap. Right. You know, we resort to substance mm -hmm. we resort to drugs we resort to alcohol speak to that as far as the substance coping through substance because i know mm -hmm. you are as i said your director of specialty substance use mm -hmm. yes. so speak on the usage of substance uses of drugs and alcohol and coping through like them men coping with that right sure yeah so um with the with the aspect of substance use um and tying that into silence a lot of times. So since as men, um, we are a little less likely to initially communicate our concerns or the way we feel to whomever is in the area. Um, and we are we tend to naturally resort to silence, at least in the first stages. Um, and like you mentioned, I'm not ready to talk about that yet. or I need a little bit more time. That certainly works. That certainly works. Um, and I think one of the challenges that comes after that is when are you going to be ready to talk about that? Uh, so 
when folks are in the stage of not being ready to talk about whatever their challenge is at the moment, that's where the substance use can start to either begin or increase for folks who are already using. So when we think about substance use, we think about a lot of the negative factors that are associated with it, which are, you know, several. And the perspective of a person who is using, whether they're using alcohol or, or, or marijuana or whatever their drug of choice is, they're using for a reason. Mm-hmm. And this is something we just talked about um, two days ago. Um, when folks are using, they're using for a reason. So, of course, that is engaging in, in an unhealthy behavior, but from the perspective of the person that's using, that may be a behavior that is productive to them in that moment. So, you know, a lot of folks use um, alcohol as, um, you know, to, as, a, as a coping mechanism to, to forget. Um, same with um, um, marijuana, same with opioids and opiates. Um, then you have the, you know, the, the stimulant drugs. You have the cocaine, you have the crystal meth, crystal meth. Um, and those things can also keep folks in an, an elevated state of not thinking about their actual problems. So the, the, the catch-22 with that is a person may not be thinking about their actual problems at, the point, at that moment when they're, when they're using. However, the problems are now becoming compound issues because, okay, I'm not thinking about whatever I'm thinking of at, at the moment, but I'm also destroying the environment that I'm in. Or I'm also showing my children that um, using, using substances or whatever a person's drug of choice is might be the way to go to deal with those problems. Of course, we know that's not, but within the realm of addiction, the mental health and the substance use, they, go, they, tie, they tie, tie together and they go hand in hand. So some people will use because of mental health reasons, and then some people have mental health uh, challenges because they use. So they intertwine with one another. Um, and they, when they do, you know, folks are duly diagnosed mm-hmm. and the presenting problem can always fluctuate depending on what they're going through during that time of their life. Okay. Cause I know, and I'm, I'm a very transparent person, mm-hmm. so I will, um, I don't mind opening up and letting people know about my past, my transgressions, things I've went through. Right. My father is alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And I mean, it's to a point where, you know, my mother once told him that if you keep this up, you're going to like, you're going to die alone, you know? And, and he, he doesn't, he just kept going. You know, he, he kept going in and it was to the point where I had to separate myself from him, mm-hmm. you know, and me doing that was me being like, OK, I there's nothing I can do for you. Mm-hmm. You have to want to get whatever help you need. Yeah. And, you know, he unfortunately is not. So, yeah. you know, all, all I can do for that situation is, you know, keep him in my prayers and everything. But, mm-hmm. um one thing about like the whole drug use and, and drinking is i i don't it it always uh, it always seems to frustrate me mm-hmm. you know when when i see that because i'm looking at it as i know that there's trauma there's there's certain things that's going on because i can look at someone and it's okay to have like a drink occasionally mm-hmm. but when it becomes a recurring thing like you can't function without doing it i look at that as that's there there's something rooted there Mm -hmm. that needs to be handled 
speaking like as you said we are all speaking about mental health yeah. but mental health became more heightened during the pandemic yes obviously the loss of jobs the loss of income how do you feel like that took a toll on men's mental health because as men we are the providers yeah. and if we don't have income if we don't have a job mm -hmm. How can we then provide for our family or how can we provide for ourselves? So how did that take a toll on men's mental health from your perspective? Yeah, sure. Um, so the the pandemic took a significant toll on the mental health of a lot of the um, men and black men that I've seen and that I that I work with programmatically, in particular, when when jobs were shutting down, places were closing. And, you know, a lot of a lot of people didn't have a place to go to for work. And then that also the pandemic also made it more difficult to seek employment as well mm -hmm. um, because more places were closed. Uh, I, I've seen a significant decrease in in mental health uh, treatment. Uh, so individuals who were consistent with their with their sessions, with their treatment became less consistent. I've also seen an increase in uh, substance use um, due to the pandemic because there was again going back to the coping mechanism of of you know not having not having employment and and having financial needs for for children ourselves the families and so forth uh, we've seen the substance use increase um, in in several different areas and a lot of overdoses and some some deaths associated with that but the the pandemic really really put a a a hurting on the mental health of men overall because when folks when men aren't able to work that's that kind of goes against the natural inclination to protect and provide, right? Mm -hmm. um, and being able to have a steady income, um, and then losing that income, now there's now there's different sorts of risk. There's a financial risk. Um, there's housing, possible housing loss. Uh, where are we going to go? Right. Are we going to be at risk of um, having to move in with somebody or sleeping on the streets or whichever the case is? Um, and there's there's also the the social risk too. So going back to the male ego, right? Um, not having a job due to the pandemic impacts the the, the male ego, which is associated with uh, the the bravado that we that we naturally have, right? So um, it's kind of like uh, taking the, the the teeth away from a German shepherd, right? Mm -hmm. <laughs> so <laughs> so you know, a German shepherd doesn't have his teeth now. He he a male German shepherd might feel a little a little less than, right? Yes. Because that's his primary weapon. That's the primary tool to protect. His, his his puppies right mm -hmm. uh, I like to use a lot of metaphors and stuff like that, but, <laughs> <laughs> uh, but yeah so the, the pandemic had really really put a dampering on um, not only the mental health of, of men of, of black men but the treatment as well you know so the you know when folks are going through things they may be getting to a point where they're less likely to go to treatment because it's gotten too bad and a lot of times when from what my perspective and what I've seen within the people that um, that receive services in the community is when it gets too far, if you miss one, two, three sessions, it's like, well, I'm too far in the hole. I can't go back now. I've already been gone for a month or a month and a half or whichever it's been so that the, the length of time in between sessions and treatment definitely plays a role in whether or not somebody is able to or willing to continue that 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 gap is a significant factor in in the continuation or discontinuation of services. Now, with the decrease in, in the treatment, mm -hmm. would you say that is because with them losing the jobs that, you know, some jobs they provide health insurance, some, mm -hmm. you know, and if they 
lose their job, they lose their benefits. Right. Would would that also be the case when it comes to it? One hundred percent, one hundred percent. So the um, the benefit, the factor of the benefits um, also holds a significant amount of weight because again, with the health insurance, we have to think about how many people are on family plans. Mm-hmm. So if I lose my job, then I don't have health insurance, which may be one thing. But if I lose my job and I don't have health insurance and I'm on a family plan, then my five kids don't have health insurance or my wife doesn't have health insurance or whatever it is. So it goes from a problem to a much more significant problem because you have um, family members that rely on you for for the health insurance. And, you know, some people see doctors more than others. Some Mm -hmm. people have different ailments. Some people don't. But that encompasses the risk, the risk of several factors and how how someone can try to address those those factors once once that that time comes the time of unemployment due to the pandemic in addition the pandemic there there's another factor with the pandemic being someone losing their job not because of something they did or because of poor performance or because they were showing up late or not showing up at all some people lost their jobs out of their control which is a much more significant blow to take when you know you've performed well and you've always been consistent, always been on time, always done good work, but you still ended up losing your job. That's another hard pill to swallow. So thinking about how someone can kind of wrap their head around having these major consequences for something they didn't do impacts the the overall mental health of not just the person that lost their job, but the, the family members as well. And then also within the means of the pandemic, we witnessed the George Floyd murder. Mm-hmm. which brought a lot of PTSD. Right. You know, I've never in my life witnessed a murder on camera like George Floyd. Right, right. We've heard of stories of this. Like, they, you know, they said that his murder was pretty much a public lynching. Mm-hmm. That brings up the PTSD. Yeah. That brings up for black for black men seeing that, which then brings up our history with police. Yep. You know, we all know police were originally slave catchers. Mm-hmm. So we have that trauma with our history with police. Yep. And then we just see that heightened level of paranoia, anger, frustration, yep. all within the midst of being stuck in a house. Yep. As a mental health specialist, when you, if you ever dealt with someone that was going through that, how were you able to like help guide them through whatever trouble that they were facing during that time? Because I know me personally, I was speaking to my therapist and, and the reason why I appreciate my therapist as much as I do is because she's very open and honest. Mm-hmm. One of the first things she said when I was expressing my feelings to her about everything that was going on, she was like, I can empathize with you, but I can't relate to what you're That's going it. through. That's it. But what I can do, let me give you this person's number. Yep. Reach out to him. It's a black man. Reach out to him. Because mm-hmm. that's someone that you can speak more to about these certain problems that you're going through. Yep. So if you had if you had anyone that during that time or still because I mean even though people are saying that we're over like we're kind of getting out of the pandemic we still have and we will always have 
injustice for sure how do how do you deal with that when people come to you about that okay i think um as far as the injustice in the pandemic one of the things that i've i've done was um i've been able to kind of put together a lot of support groups and it's just isn't isn't even for work it's just for just for for personal as a as a person in the community so i've been able to put together a lot of support groups um virtually um and even some in person uh that addressed the the intolerance and the you know the, the systemic racism and walking around with a target on your back and how those are exacerbated by the the pandemic right because as as you just mentioned we are coming out of the pandemic but the the residual effects are still there mm-hmm. you know some people still hadn't been able to get back to work you know and, and so forth so um being being a, a member of the community even before I'm a I'm a counselor I think I I hold true to that and I think that's that's important because I wouldn't have been a counselor if I wasn't a part of this community you know so that 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 kind of comes first um so I think showing a lot of people especially black men that uh, black men are are in need of each other in order for to to obtain that support. Iron sharpens iron. Iron sharpens iron, 100%. Um, and kind of reminding folks that, you know, getting people together in a room and reminding them that they, you know, they're all here going through, traveling on the same, the same, in the same car, going down the same road at the same time. Um, of course, that road is going to split into different areas, but still being a black man uh, in America has its challenges. Some people are still not willing to admit that and that's 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 okay that's that's, that's okay that's yeah um <laughs> that just comes you know that's part of that is the denial piece but that's for later um and just showing that support and maintaining a frame of i'm always gonna be here for as long as i can and while i'm here i'm gonna support um everyone i can as much as i can and i think when people know of a consistent and constant person um, also such as yourself, um, people will gravitate more towards you and that that helps with the overall processing of things that are happening in the country. So black men being around black men is one of the most healthy things that we can do for each other. I mean, in, in of, of course, with regard to being positive about, about right. you know, about whatever the situation is. And when people understand that they develop a in time, they are able to develop a sense of comfort. So now it's, oh, there's a group of black men over here. Maybe I should be over here too, mm-hmm. you know? And that kind of, it's very, very subtle, yet very effective. So I think just us coming together and acknowledging that we're on the same, in the same vehicle at the same time brings forth a sense of community intellectually. Now, of course, we all live in different places in the city, but we're still in the same boat uh, intellectually and spiritually, emotionally, because when I go outside, they're gonna look at you the way just the way they look at me, right? And vice versa. It doesn't matter if it's Andre or Charles. Mm-hmm. It's still it's still whatever it is, right? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> For our final highlight on June twenty second, twenty twenty three, a sculpture was dedicated outside the Central Library to Buffalo raised poet Lucille Clifton. Clifton was a writer responsible for more than 18 children's books, a dozen poetry books, and among her many accolades, a National Book Award and an Emmy. Her daughter, Sydney Clifton, and Just Buffalo's artistic director, Barbara Cole, spent some time with Jay Moran, reminiscing about the literary giant that was Lucille Clifton. 
Well, so much to talk about here. I guess let's just maybe, Barbara, allow you to put Lucille Clifton into perspective for us, being the literary center here in Western New York. Talk about Lucille Clifton. What makes her significant? Well, Lucille Clifton remains one of the most important writers of the 20th century, period. Uh, People all over the world uh, have been inspired by her work and her legacy. Um, So many prominent inaugural poets have cited her as a primary influence. Uh, Amanda Gorman and Elizabeth Alexander wrote in The New Yorker that she doesn't think there's an American poet as beloved as Clifton or one whose influence radiated as widely. And so Lucille Clifton is a beloved writer throughout the world. And we are so proud that Lucille Clifton comes from Buffalo. She was born in Depew, New York, and lived here for 32 years. And we are just absolutely thrilled at Just Buffalo Literary Center to be able to shine a spotlight on uh, Lucille Clifton's life and legacy. Let's turn it to you, Sydney. When you hear that description of your mother, are you thinking of a, a literary giant or are you thinking of mom? Uh, all of the above, yeah. actually, um, because we, we recognize her uh, contributions. And the poem said she wrote so reflected her life that it, it was not a leap. It is it is all of those things. She was all those things to us and continues to be. What was she like as a mom? Non-traditional, I would say, okay. in that although there were, there were six of us, my mother had, my parents had six children in seven years. <laughs> um, so there was a lot of energy in the house. Um, mom was very much sort of focused on who are these people? rather than these are my children. Now don't get me wrong, she was very protective of her of her kids, but she also recognized each of our individual gifts and I think that although we had we all shared the mothering, we had individual relationships with her where we had different conversations and different focuses and she really was able to make us each feel like we were all each her favorite um, <laughs> in, in different ways. Um, she never said that by the way, right. but um I really felt that as a mother, she modeled for us um, being authentically who you are, asking a lot of questions, and, and following whatever your in- your individual bliss was. And it didn't have to be each other's. Um, we never felt like there was pressure to do a thing or this thing or that thing or be ambitious in the way that she was or not ambitious in um, other ways. So I think that as a mom, that, that for me certainly was uh, the best mothering. How about the realization that, I guess, when it happened and how it felt, when you realized yeah. how big a deal your mom was? It's so funny. <laughs> I used to go to readings with her um, at times, and my sisters had done the same thing. And when you see the audiences and when you see people responding to her in, in the way that, it's like, mom must be something. I mean, oh, okay. Um, and I have to say, there were times where I was equally very proud and intimidated by it. Um, because there's, as a child, you know, you're a little self-absorbed and you think like, does this mean that it's, this fame, this reputation, this work is taking her away from us? And I think each of us sort of struggled with that, or at least asked ourselves the question uh, for a while. But once we saw that this was just another manifestation of when you are walking in that bliss, all all of you, bring all of you to the table, um, and it doesn't diminish any other piece of you. Once we felt comfortable with that, once we saw it, um, it sort of relaxed. But 
you know, I was, I was proud of the lady. I remain <laughs> proud of her. You know, I, I, I yeah, can appreciate that. I'm, I'm proud that she's from Buffalo. That's the way we are here in, mm-hmm. in Western New York. <laughs> <laughs> we have, I had an old colleague used to say, if uh, if you uh, had a layover in the Buffalo airport, we called you a native from Buffalo. But that's another, <laughs> <laughs> another story. Um, back to the, maybe you can give us some insight then. Here is a woman, Lucille Clifton, 14 collections of poetry books, mm-hmm. 18 children's books. Mm-hmm. What did you see in terms of her work ethic? Obviously, if with six kids in a short period of time, that, that, that on its own is its own full-time job. Mm-hmm. In terms of work ethic and inspiration, what, do you, what, do you, mm-hmm. what can you give us about that? Uh, in terms of work ethic, uh, I, I can comment on that in retrospect, but yeah. as we were growing up, it just looked like mom was at the table writing. Okay. That's what she did. That's what she did, rather, and that's who she was. We also recognize that you don't bother her while she's doing that. Um, but honestly, we didn't know any different. This is just mom and her writing. We thought everybody's mother wrote, actually. <laughs> we, we thought, when does your mom do her work? Where does she like to sit up? You know, <laughs> Because mom wrote at the, at the dining room table primarily, and, it, and so that was just you know, what we knew, honestly. Um, in terms of inspiration, I think mom found inspiration everywhere. She mm. certainly found it in her children, with her, with her children's books. But I think that we also recognize that for her, the poetry was her resolving some things. And my mom was uh, very intuitive, very curious, very intelligent, um, very creative, very, what, empathetic. So she also had always had curiosity about people and places and things and historical pe- figures and such and wonder what I wonder what that person's life like was like I wonder what that felt like for them and was able to then sort of poem it as she would say as she would describe it she would just poem that out um, I think she also recognized that a lot of things were very cathartic for her um, in certain times when there were aspects of her life that she was sort of pushing away her being a poet allowed her to resolve, ask the questions, get some closure, give herself some grace often um, on events of her life and people she loved and mistakes she thought she made, etc. Um, so I think the inspiration was this helps me, and if it helps me, it could provide a light for someone else. Because she always recognized that surely she's not the only one who has experienced something like this. Um, and that was a, a kind of service, I think, that her life and her work really... I don't even know if she knew until later in her life how deeply healing her work was for so many people. Barbara, you're a poet yourself. Um the, the life of a poet uh, is a, obviously not one that gets laid out uh, in any kind of a specific structure, but maybe you give us an idea of what it m- must have taken to get to the level of notoriety that Lucille Clifton had. Can you give us an idea of how that would be? Because as Sidney was talking, you know, I might write some things out to, to be cathartic and try to work through you know, the, the problems of the day, the issues of the day, but nobody's going to read my stuff. A lot of people have read Lucille Clifton's. How, how, what about that trajectory? How does that evolve? Well, <laughs> that's a great question, Jay. And I think you're right that there are so many people who 
uh, there's so many people who are writing at home, but maybe don't have the courage to share it. And what's extraordinary, I think, about Lucille Clifton's life, she started writing poems we know at the age of 10. Mm. That's the earliest poems that, that um, we have of hers. And But really, her career was launched when her friend here in Buffalo, Ishmael Reed, who is another incredibly important 20th century writer, uh, Ishmael Reed encouraged her to send her poems to Langston Hughes, who was editing the groundbreaking anthology Poetry of the Negro, and Langston Hughes recognized in Lucille Clifton, who was an unknown writer at the time, he recognized just how extraordinary her work was. And to read Clifton's work now, it is still groundbreaking, but to imagine how groundbreaking uh, her voice and her style and the humor and so many of the um, aspects of it that, that Sidney just mentioned with addressing, you know, she's pulling in African history with contemporary events and her own personal life in almost a confessional mode. Um, there's humor and there's joy. There's also grief and loss. Um, she just was all encompassing. And um, I think to have a career like Lucille Clifton's would be the dream for for most writers. Um, and but I hope that it's a source of inspiration, uh, the courage that she had and the courage of her convictions um, to never shy away from uh, dark truths or uh, complicated topics. She just brought her courage to the page every day. We're talking about uh, Lucille Clifton today on Buffalo What's Next. As a matter of fact, we don't necessarily just have to talk about her. We can hear from Lucille Clifton. As a matter of fact, we have her reciting one of her poems right here. And this universal poem is called Homage to My Hips. <clears throat> These hips are big hips. They need space to move around in. They don't fit into little petty places. These hips are free hips. They don't like to be held back. These hips have never been enslaved. They go where they want to go. They do what they want to do. These hips are mighty hips. These hips are magic hips. I have known them to put a spell on a man and to spin him like a top. <laughs> well, Cindy Clifton, there's mom uh, taking us in a lot of directions in a short period of time. Exactly. <laughs> what do you, I, and I could see you were mouthing a couple of the lines, as a matter of fact, so you're familiar with it. Well, what about that particular work and maybe other works like that? Uh, what do we know about What does that say about, uh, about Lucille Clifton? That she was audacious and, <laughs> and funny, and this poem was sort of the, the antidote to... Uh, women being ta taught that their curvy bodies were not acceptable and not okay, mm. uh, particularly black women. Um, so that for me was this. This was like an anthem that uh, that we truly, truly loved, and that also the fact that she was able to provide that for people. Um, she, like I think many women, I can't say all women, but many women struggle with a lot of sort of body issues and self love and concern and. and um, insecurity about am I attractive? Am I this? Am I that? You know that sort of thing. And uh, this was part of her way of saying, of declaring her independence from those that negativity. And I just, I just love hearing that every time. <laughs> <laughs> Sydney was uh, born here in uh, Buffalo, um, but uh, moved away not too long after uh, her. Uh, uh, with her her large family and moved to Maryland. Uh, so this is your first time back 
in Buffalo. This is my first time back in 50 years. And How does it feel? Surreal. Very yeah. surreal. Um, we're going to be doing a Places That the Clifton's Lived tour probably sometime <laughs> tomorrow. Um, and just, But there are things I still recognize. I have sort of flashes of uh, visual memory and even sort of these these are the kind of trees I grew up with. These are the this is the landscape. This is how this sort of smelled. Um, so there's something about it that's like deeply resonant, and I probably won't process it for another couple days. Probably. What about the buffalo connection in Lucille's work? And Barbara, you could probably uh, speak to this as well. What about that? Uh, you know, we talk about her moving away, going to to Maryland, and you know, but it's where her career blossomed. But what about the buffalo connection? Is it seen in her work? Buffalo is woven throughout her work. Uh, there's numerous poems about growing up on Purdy Street. Uh, you mentioned her books of poems and her many children's books, but she also wrote a memoir edited by Nobel Prize winner Toni Morrison. Wow. And her memoir very much tells the story of her own life woven together with the lives of her father and, and some of her ancestors. Um, and, and Buffalo is just so clearly such an important foundational grounding throughout so much of her work. And that's part of the reason why we felt it was so important for Buffalo to really recognize um, Clifton as one of the great writers who has walked these streets and called these neighborhoods home. She is a daughter of the East Side who went on to such greatness and what an inspiring story for, for all Western New Yorkers. We thank you for joining us. This has been Buffalo What's Next, Producers Picks. we also like to thank all our guests this week, Judson Price, Andre Stokes Jr., Barbara Cole, and Sidney Clifton. As a reminder, Buffalo What's Next airs on WBFO every weekday, 10 to 11, and re-airs each weeknight at 9. Each episode is also available wherever you get your podcasts, the Amplify BTPM app, and also on demand at WBFO.org. I'm producer Lorenzo Rodriguez. Thank you very much for listening.